Hey, Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church Audio Podcast. Today on the podcast, we have part three of our series. This message was from January 20th, 2013. And we're looking at our connection as a church to the surrounding culture. This comes in a series where we're looking at some of our core values and philosophy of ministry and inviting folks to consider uh, being on a journey with us for this next year. So, lots of things going on at North Shore Vineyard. Check them out at northshorevineyard.org. We have a worship night coming up this Friday night. Uh, I've got a relate our relationships course going on on Wednesday nights and uh, a service industry night starting in March. So, lots of things going on. Check them out on the web. But for now, let's head over to North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. And now today, we're going to turn our attention to the culture. And as we frequently do around here, I'm going to start with a story from ancient history. Yay. <laughs> We've covered enough history in recent months that you should be able to get credit uh, at a community college. <laughs> There's a fascinating story that goes back to 600 uh, BC, ancient Greece. This was uh, roughly a little over 600 years before most of the stuff that you see in the New Testament. Athens, Greece, was having a plague. People were dying left and right. Now, Athens was known for being a center for, for worship of all kinds of gods. They were really into polytheism. Uh, if you Maybe you've studied Greek mythology. They had, they had uh, deities everywhere. In fact, one philosopher once remarked that journeying into Athens, you were more likely to see an idol than you were a person, a human being. <laughs> because they had idols for everything. And so what you do in a polytheistic culture when you have a, 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 a plague or something horrible going wrong, what do you do? You, you try to make amends with every god that you got. And so you can imagine if you worshipped hundreds of different, of different gods that that would be a lengthy procedure. So the Athenians, they began making sacrifices to this god and this god and this god. And it went on for a long period of time. And they, they exhaust every god that they have and the plague was still there. And so finally they sent someone to, to a temple to go talk to an oracle. And this oracle was a, a woman and she said, here's the problem. There's one God that you don't know of, that you haven't sacrificed to, and you've offended him. You need to make things right with him. And they said, well, how do we do that? And she says, I don't know. But there's a smart guy named Epimendes who lives on the, the island of Crete. You need to track Epimendes down, and he will have the answer for you. So the Greeks sent someone to, to fetch Epimendes from, from Crete. They bring him back to, to Athens, and they said, Epimendes, what are we supposed to do? What do you, you think what this uh, oracle said was right? He said, yes, you have offended a God that you don't know. And so here's what we're going to do. I want you to get two herds of sheep, one black and one white, and don't let them eat anything uh, during the evening. And then we're going to bring them out to Mars Hill in the morning. And we're going to, to pray to this unknown God and, and just see if we've offended him. We're going to try to do something to figure out if, if he exists and then if we've offended him, we'll make amends. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to let the sheep out and they're going to be hungry sheep. But if any of them don't eat and instead just lay down in the grass, we'll take it as a sign that there is another God that we haven't known of. 
And right there, we'll erect an altar to, in, in every spot where a sheep lays down. And, and we'll erect an altar to this God and ask for his forgiveness. And we'll offer him the sheep that uh, had laid down. So the next morning, they, they gather out at Mars Hill. And they did just like Epimendes said. Now, some of the people were like, oh, this is you know, kind of skeptical. But sure enough, one, a ram over here lays down. Another sheep over here lays down. And before their eyes, uh, their, their prayer had been answered. They, they, actually, before they even let him out, they said, God, uh, uh, if you're out there, maybe you've kind of prayed that prayer before. If you're out there, if, if, if I've offended you in some way, a little help here, can you, can you make yourself known? And sure enough, these sheep began to lay down one at a time. And so they called for some stonemasons. And the stonemasons marked every spot where a sheep had been laying. And they immediately erected an altar and by that afternoon, when the mortar had dried, they sacrificed each one of these sheep. And they put a placard upon each altar that said, To the unknown God. Now, you may rec- recognize that phrase. Uh, in, in Greek, it's agnost- agnostos theos. To the unknown God. It, it's a phrase that actually appears in the book of Acts. When Paul is trying to speak to the Athenian people about Jesus. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story today. If you have your Bible, you can turn in Acts to chapter 17, starting in verse 16, 31. This is an interesting passage because it's the most lengthy of all of Paul's addresses to people about Jesus in the Bible. This is a speech of Paul as opposed to his own writings. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, some of his friends in ministry... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well in the marketplace, day in, day out, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, and some of them asked, asked him, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. It was kind of like TED Talks. If anybody watches TED Talks, it's kind of like that. Um, If you don't don't know what I'm talking about. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around, I looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God, Agnostos Theos. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. I'm going to proclaim to you the God that you worship without knowing it. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by human hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all of the nations that they should inhabit, inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and histories and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For, as, for in him 
we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, turn to him. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this of everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you more on this subject. At that, Paul left and left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, Areopagus sorry. also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. I want to look at this passage today because it's a fascinating passage of how to share the gospel in a world that really exalts reason and philosophy, but yet still is, is very religious. Because, you know, there's been this trend in, in our world for, for many years now towards secularism, uh, towards uh, uh, things becoming less and less uh, you know, the, the, the church kind of dominated the landscape for so many years, and now that's becoming less and less. Actually, if you listen to NPR this, this last week, they had, uh, they're talking about one of the most interesting statistics, uh, according to religion in recent days, is that uh, the, the largest group of people surveyed in America, the, the, or the fastest growing group, is people who have no religious affiliation at all. These are people who don't identify, and many of the, most of these have actually grown up in church. They've grown up Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, Charismatic, but they've just got to the point where they just don't have any use for it anymore. It's not, though, that they don't want God. It's a weird thing because most of these people kind of have some vague idea of spirituality, some vague belief that there is God. They're not in the, in the Richard Dawkins, you know, hardcore atheist camp. They're not flat out rejecting the idea that there's a God, but they've kind of got to the point where they, eh, I don't know. I think in this passage today, it gives us some ideas for how to speak of God in a world that is, is, is continually moving towards postmodernism, pluralism, uh, uh, where truth is kind of up for grabs in all different spheres, multi-global. I mean, all the things that, that, that affect our world today. So I want to look at a couple of things here. How does Paul tell the Athenians about Jesus? Well, first I want to say what he doesn't do. He doesn't beat them up for not acting like Christians. You ever seen Christians do this before? Get mad at people who aren't Christians for not acting like Christians? What are you doing? You're acting like a bunch of heathen. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> Paul doesn't come into Athens in spite of all their idolatry. He doesn't come in, you know, kicking over idols and stuff. He doesn't, you know, march up and, and, and tear things down. Paul actually goes to where the people are. And so here's what he does. Paul starts with an encounter in their history with the one true God. You know, if you read this account of Acts without hearing that story from 600 years before, it just sounds like, oh, okay, Paul came across something that said to the unknown God. But when you realize Paul wasn't just 
pulling some random thing out. He was actually calling them back to something in their history. And you can read this. It is in history. I'm not just making this up. They had an encounter with the one true God. Oh, and I forgot to mention this in the story. After they sacrificed the sheep, guess what? The plague ended. It was a point where this polytheistic culture who was worshiping idols by the hundreds actually bumped into the one true God, the unknown God, the God who can't be represented by an idol or worshiped in temples, the one who's bigger than anything that they can imagine. And so Paul, when he's speaking at the Areopagus, he calls them back to something in their history. Look, you guys have encountered God. You're, you're worshiping idols left and right, but you've actually encountered the one true God, and, and it's the unknown God to you, and that's the one that I'm coming to you to talk about, because I know him. I know the unknown God. So Paul starts with their own history, where they've encountered God before. And also, he moves from there to actually quoting poets from their own culture. Paul this, this phrase, in him we live and move and have our being, it was actually written by Epimendes, who was the uh, Greek poet. This would, this would be like you know, quoting a lyric from a Beatles song nowadays. This was pop culture for the Greeks. And Paul, in communicating Jesus, he doesn't try to speak Hebrew or King James or use a bunch of things that are foreign to the Greeks. He actually uses some of their own poets. There was another poet named Eratus who, uh, there was a line in there in his speech from Eratus as well. Paul is speaking to them of their encounter of God in their own history. And he's also borrowing from their own cultural language to communicate to them about Jesus. You know, in the last several decades, there's been a term thrown, a lot, thrown about a lot in the, uh, in the church called the culture war. Have you ever heard of the culture war, right? There's this war for the culture of, of you know, for the, the heart and soul of America. Secularism is threatening to, you know, take God out of schools and God out of the government and God out of this place. As I said a few weeks ago, I don't think you can take God out of anything. And if you can, a little bit of God, okay? But there's this idea that we're in a culture war, so we've got to, we've got to fight for the, the culture. And so this has caused a, a couple of things. There's, there's uh, in a sense, because the church has seen the influx of secular humanism and stuff like that, the church has pulled away from the society a bit. You know, if you can go to any Christian bookstore right now, you can find just about uh, an alternative for just about every regular thing there is out there. Right? There's, there's rock and roll music out in the world, and you've got Christian rock and roll. You've got regular movies out here. You've got Christian movies. And that's, that's fairly easy to understand. It's just it doesn't stop there. You've got Christian workout videos. You've got Christian self-help books. You've even got Christian candy bars. And, and if I wanted to go on, I, I really could. It's, it's, but I, I read one author one time, he said, you know, the word Christian was never meant to be an adjective. It works best as a noun, as a state of being. Whenever you put Christian with something else, you lessen both things. You cheapen what Christian means, and you cheapen what the product means. See, the, 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 the sad thing is, by pulling away from the surrounding culture, the, the, the church in America has created a subculture, a cultural ghetto. 
You know, when people outside the church look at the church, they're not coming to the church to find uh, cultural advances. They're not saying, oh, we've got to find some Christians because they make the best movies in the world. <laughs> right? Usually, people outside the church, when they think of the Christian culture, they think, eh, poor guys. <laughs> kind of cheesy. I'm not saying that there aren't Christians that, that don't create things, but I'm talking about this Christian culture mentality where we, 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 we see ourselves at war, and it's a false war. It's a war that looks good on the media, but it, the, the downside to the culture war idea is that it's caused Christians to pull away from interacting with the world, and that's a sad thing. And there's no other place where this is seen uh, p- more prevalently than in the public schools of America. If, if you think, if you Google the, the, the term Christian and public schools, you're likely to find all the things that Christians hate about public schools. You know, they, they, they're trying to kick God out. You know, they don't allow prayer in school. Or uh, you, you'll find that, you know, there, there, there's stories about Christians who are, you know, suing a, a school because they can't say a prayer at a commencement address, at a graduation You'll find Christians who uh, are boycotting schools because of textbooks. You're, you're not too likely to find stories about Christians who actually love and serve public schools. You know, a few years ago, I, I, actually, a few weeks ago, I, I read a story. You might have seen this on the news. It was, uh, I think, in Metairie or New Orleans about a kid who got stabbed with some scissors, or at least threatened to be stabbed with some scissors down in one of the public schools. And it was a big, it made the news at least. Uh, it was a big deal. You know what? Dean and I have a story like that as well. Several years ago, my lovely daughter Tevia, you're on the front row so you get made fun of, uh, embarrassed. Uh, several years ago, when Tevia was kindergarten age, we were living in Kenner on the South Shore. And it, it was the time that we were going to have to figure out what to do with her for school. And so, uh, we had a few options. First was homeschool. A lot of our friends homeschooled, and some of them are very good at it. We, we started considering our own uh, personalities and stuff, and we realized our kid would probably get a very substandard education if we're in charge of doing it all. <laughs> some people are good homeschool teachers. Uh, some people homeschool set them back for a long time because uh, not so much. Uh, we had some of our friends who were putting their kids in private Christian schools, and we're like, that's great, but we couldn't afford that option. And so we were left with the local public school, Schneckenberger Elementary, in, in, in Killing. <laughs> you heard of it? And uh, we prayed about it, and we just felt like, you know, we do feel like this is what God's calling us into. You know, part of our prayers, though, and this is, this is I, I think, one of the aggravating things about the culture war mentality is it doesn't consider the mission of Jesus in the public sphere. It's all about pulling away from the public sphere. Uh, it's, it's all about hiding away from the evil, wicked culture out there instead of jumping in the midst of it and being light and salt. And so we really had a conviction as people that we, we, we just really prayed about and we felt like, you know, we feel like God wants our kids to be light in the school. And so... That's what we did. We, we put Tevi in there, and she did kindergarten there. And everything was great 
for that first year up until about April. And I'm out of town on a retreat with our uh, pastoral staff from the, the vineyard on the South Shore. And Dina gets a call. Somebody stabbed your daughter with some scissors. And Mama Bear showed up at school. <laughs> now, when I say stabbed, it sounded a little bit more dramatic. It, it wasn't that bad. She didn't have to get stitches or anything, uh, go into therapy or anything like that. But when you call a mom and say, your kid's been stabbed with scissors, it's on. And so Dina shows up at the principal's office, Miss Lana Deer, on the South Shore, and she's like, you know, how we give our child to you to protect our child and to teach her. How does this happen under your watch? Probably didn't say it that eloquently, right? Uh, how does this happen? That my child, in a place where she's supposed to be safe and learn, how does she get stabbed by another kid? And the teacher's like, I'm sorry, we just have some kids that are problem kids, and you know, they're, they're coming from really bad situations. And, and at some point in the midst of her anger and just confusion about the circumstance, God entered into the room. And she, she just knows that. It wasn't her idea. It's like God showed up in that room, and she said, well, what about these kids that do this stuff? Is there anything to help them? And the principal was like, kind of caught off guard by that. She's like, well, no, we, we don't. We got one so- social worker who's here you know, a couple of days a week, like most public schools. I, probably a lot of public schools don't even have a social worker that's there now. And she said, you know, that, that's about all we have. Well, Dana and I, we'd been a part of a church in Hammond years ago that had this program called Kids Hope. And it's where a a local church adopts a public school. One church, one school. And the church trains up mentors who will go to that public school once a week and spend an hour with an at-risk kid. And Dina just remembered this program. She said, well, there's this thing we used to do called Kids Hope. Would y'all be interested in something like that? And the principal was a little reluctant at first because when you have... The sad state of affairs in our country is that when you have somebody in the church saying they want to do something for your public school, it usually means they want to take it over or change your curriculum or have a revival. (laughs) So she was a little reluctant. Uh, Well, that could be good. And we we began to kind of pursue this and we... We looked into it and we, we communicated with her. We said, look, you know, this is a nationwide program. It's, it's not just some freaky thing. They, they, they don't allow mentors to share their religion unless a kid asks, you know. So it's not like we're coming in here to convert kids or anything. We just want to help the school. And so we got the church in Kenner. They, we presented it to the pastor down there. They said, this sounds amazing. So we, we went ahead and launched in um, 2005. And... Uh, the, the teacher, you know, the, the principal had to be convinced that it, <laughs> it was going to be okay. And it was interesting because we, lo- we were planning the launch right when Katrina happened. And so really, for the first couple of months, we couldn't do the mentoring program. But we had a relationship already established with the school. So you know what we started doing? We were getting all these supplies donated to the church. We started funneling backpacks and school supplies to these kids who had lost stuff. We began bringing hot meals to the teacher during the week when their cafeteria couldn't work. We uh, began working on their landscape. We painted their bathrooms. We just started doing things to serve them. And they were, again, they were still leery. Like, where's the catch? When are y'all going to give me a, a track? <laughs> you know. 
But when we finally launched, by, by the end of that first year, we had, I don't know, maybe eight mentors. And I was one of them. And I met with this one kid once a week for an hour. And, and, and the next year, we started again, added a few more mentors. When we left, there's probably about 15, 16 mentors uh, on the South Shore after doing this program for three years. Now, the program's up to, I think, around 30 or so mentors who go in there every week. And, and they interviewed Diane Lonadier, the, uh, the principal there, uh, a, a year or so ago, just you know, asking her about it. And she's blown away. She's blown away. I never expected a church to do this. I never expected that, but she said, this is the most amazing thing because the kids who are having the most behavioral problems get the most attention. (laughs) They get a healthy, positive role model in their life. And the amazing thing is, by one hour a week, these kids actually start turning around. Their, their behavior starts to improve. Because for a lot of these kids, having one adult in their life is more than they've got. A, a positive role model. One of the last kids that I, I mentored, his, his uh, mother had been a prostitute. His dad was in prison. And this kid was a great kid. The church on the South Shore could have seen the, the public schools in an adversarial way. Oh, well, they're teaching things that are not in the Bible. They won't let you have prayer groups in school. They could have fought with the schools. And that's what most churches are are good at, at least the ones that get attention. (laughs) Good at fighting the schools. But what about fighting for the schools? See, I I really believe God's calling us as a church. You know, one of the reasons we located here in downtown Covington and not on, on the edge of things on an interstate is because we want to participate with the culture in this community. We want to be a part of it. I See, I believe the, the church should be on the cutting edge of culture, creating culture, not trying to catch up with it with cheap imitations. I believe that the church should be a place where we're innovative, where, where we, we, you know, I'm, we've got artists in this church that are creating amazing works of art in here. We've got people that, that, that are gifted, and we want to be creative in the way that we connect. That's why we open up this church a couple times a year for art showings. But it just doesn't end there. Our job as Christians, the way we, at least the way we're coming down on as a church, our value here is that when we see people in this community, that we don't try to beat them up for not being Christians. We try to find out what is God doing in their lives. On the other side of this wall, there's a bar. And I've gone over there on open mic night a few times and played some music. And uh, every time I go over there, I end up in conversations with people. You know, one night I shared a couple of songs and end up talking to a guy for about an hour and he starts opening up to me about God and his life, his journey. I'm not preaching to him. I'm not wearing my pastor hat. I'm just a musician in a bar playing some music. What I'm doing is I, as I'm listening to him is trying to listen for where has he encountered God. Where has he encountered the unknown God? How can I begin moving him towards Jesus? Actually, the song I sang in there that first night when I had a conversation with this guy was a song by uh, a, a band called Nine Inch Nails. They're not known for their stances on Christianity. But I recorded a song by them years ago 
called uh, Head Like a Hole. Because it was one thing I could agree with the guy on. It was a song against the idolatry of money. And you know what? Playing that song in that bar opened up a door. Why? Because I was using the cultural language that people knew. I was quoting from the poets of the day. The language that people knew. And I was using that to speak to their history with God. That's what we want to be as a church. That, that we're not trying to hide away from culture. We want to jump up in the middle of it. Not to judge it. Not to condemn it. We're going to look for God where we can find God. And when we find a little bit of God, we're going to try to, buy, to draw people's attention to it. You know, the reality is, for churches that have gotten real into a subculture, if you're an outsider and you come in, they feel weird. You ever been to one? I, I went to a church for years that I loved the people. People were great. But I would never bring anybody that I knew there. <laughs> you know? Have you ever, you ever been to something like, I love these people. They're quality people. But it's just, it's weird. If you, you know, like you're going to find yourself having to get out like a, a vocabulary book and some, some terms. You know, you're going to have to be talking them through that. Well, when they say this word over here, sanctification, and uh, when they do this thing, this is what it means. And you feel like, oh, it's just. You know, it's like kind of bringing somebody to your family reunion. You know you're going to have to <laughs> say some things. It's my crazy uncle over here. And <laughs> he, he means well. He might say some inappropriate things. Uh, <laughs> but I think the church, I think the church shouldn't be some weird cultural ghetto of a place where you've got you've to read up before you even can interact with people. I think it should be a group of people that are hospitable and open to outsiders. You know, one of the reasons we're doing this service industry night. Why? Because I'm just trying to speak the language of people who are in the service industry. I was in the service industry for years. I know they like to talk and hang out. And I just, I don't know if it's going to work. We may not get anybody out here. But my hope is that these people can come in and they, they see it. There's not a whole lot of weird religious things they've got to go through, but that we can connect with them right where they're at. You serve food? We'll serve you some food. Let us engage you where, you at, where you're at about God and faith. Paul was a connector with culture. He connected with the Athenians in their own culture using their own cultural language. But I think even a, a huge thing that I've seen throughout history is I think some of the best moments is, is when musicians, artists become creators of culture. And there's a lot out there. You know that band U2? They, they caught a lot of flack in the, in the early days of their band because they were playing in bars and stuff. But, you know, three out of four of the guys in that band loved Jesus. They were having Bible studies in their bus. And they've been able to do more good for the world than, than any Christian, you know, just quote Christian bands that I know. They're taking their faith and living it out there. And I could go on with examples. So I invite you to consider that kind of journey. I want to close with, with a quote from Jesus today from Matthew. Chapter 5. This is the message translation.
Jesus speaking says this, Let me tell you why you are here. You are here to be salt seasoning that brings out God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? No, I'm putting you on a light stand. And now that I've put you here on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Isn't that awesome? Dude, if you need a verse to meditate on for the next month, meditate on that. My, my life, part of my goal is to be salt and light. When I'm in conversations with people, I don't have to argue with them about politics or this thing or that. I'm just trying to bring out the God flavors. And when I see some God flavors, I throw a little bit of salt on them. When I see some God colors, I throw a little bit of light on them. And in that way, we're being relational with people and we're helping to lead them down the path. You know, the, the reality is, Paul did have an issue with the idolatry in Athens. It grieved him. Why are these people in such idolatry? But when Paul's given the chance to do something about it, he doesn't fight with them right off the bat about their idolatry. He calls them to where they've experienced God. We want to do that in the culture, downtown Covington, the North Shore, through the things that we do. And so, if, if that resonates with you this morning, I'd like to consider that being a part of this group that, that's going that way in this next year. You don't have to sign up today or anything. Why don't you stand?